1: father thank you thank you for loving us thank you for instructing us father your way is a hard way and it's beyond our natural capacity so we pray for your spirit to infuse us with gospel living um Help us to be able to die to ourselves. Help us to demonstrate the gospel and to bring life to a message that the world can see. And Lord, I pray for the singles in this room that um, you will lead them in life and provide for them that perfect spouse that will bring the best out of them. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So, in 700 BC, there was a Greek poet named Hesiod who wrote this 800 verse poem called Works and Days. And in that poem, there's a section about the Greek mythology in where women came from. And in this poem, women are portrayed as a curse. <clears throat> The character Prometheus is in need of fire and the god Zeus has withheld fire from humanity. So Prometheus does the daring thing to trick Zeus and he gets up on the mountain and he steals fire from Zeus and gives it to humanity. Now Zeus is not happy that Prometheus has deceived him, that he has tricked him and stole fire from him. So Zeus retaliates against Prometheus um, you'll hear in some accounts that Prometheus is hung on a rock and an eagle eats his liver every day. And it reaccumulates every day, so he has to go through that torment every day. His liver never ends. Um, but this is the other part in this poem particular, the Works in Days poem. Zeus retaliates upon Prometheus and humanity by sending a gift. He sends, well first he forms woman. And he says, make her very attractive, but very deceitful. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give her to man, and she's going to be this thing that man loves and cherishes and desires. But at the same time, she's going to be all of the misery of man. So he sends woman down to humanity as a gift. Her name is Pandora. And... When man accepts Pandora, she opens her jar, and all of the evil and curses of the earth come out. And that's the Greek idea of where woman came from. So, woman is a curse according to the Greeks. Prometheus is punished, so he has to live with woman. And the rest of humanity is cursed because they have to live with woman. Can I get an amen? No, I'm totally kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I share that story because I think that in society, and unfortunately, even in the church, there is this mentality that marriage is a curse. That marriage is super-duper hard. It's going to drain you entirely. You're going to be nagged at. You're going to have a ball and chain around your foot for the rest of your life. And if you want to separate, it's this big, messy legal business. Oh, and plus... Your spouse might want kids. And there's just a whole portrayal of it's a problem, it's a burden, it's a curse. And when we see divorce rates rising as much, I mean, divorce is as prevalent as marriage, it makes us sit back and say, whoa, why is there marriage? Is man and woman being together a curse? Is that the idea? And we even have a generation that looks at cohabitation as being more preferable than commitment. We would rather live with people in a loose connection, that's cohabitation, rather than commit to a lifelong marriage. Because the cohabitation means I can pull out whenever I want. I still have my own self-governance. There's a safety net of, if this doesn't work, I'm gone. And we seem to be in this confused section of the world where we're wondering what is the purpose of marriage. What is the mission of marriage? So, I think that we need to see marriage as God intended it. We need to see man and woman being together as a blessing. That marriage has a distinct purpose that is good for humanity. And unless we understand the mission of marriage, then we won't understand the point of marriage. We'll see it as a curse. You have to understand the mission, the reason marriage was instituted, or else marriage will be a curse. So that's where we're going tonight. I want to paint the mission of marriage so that we understand how we're to operate underneath this thing, marriage, so that it doesn't become a curse to us, but it becomes a blessing. That we don't buy into Greek mythology, but we buy into Theology. What the Bible has to say about marriage and all of its blessings. So, we have to begin by realizing um, that this is where we're going. The mission of marriage is that it is a model of the gospel, marriage is a stage in which the gospel is on a display. Marriage is this thing where the gospel becomes tangible. God has revealed himself through his creation. I don't know if you guys realize that. Sometimes we get all like worked up about pantheism. Like, no, you can't mention God in creation. That's saying God is creation. That's bad. No, no, no. God has chosen to reveal himself through things that we see. Have we ever seen God himself? No. But we see his creation. And we see him manifest his character and his purposes through these things. For example, after God creates the earth, on the sixth day, he realizes that he needs a representation of himself to his creation. So what does he create? He creates man and woman in the image of God. The image of God means that God is revealing himself and the way he functions through the human race. There is a semblance of God and he's, he's communicating and manifesting himself through that. We also have the seasons. Brittany and I and JC have become very aware of the torments of winter this year. Something about when you grow up and own your own stuff and... Uh, You don't get snow days, winter is all of a sudden not fun, and it's cold, it's miserable, you miss the sun, you just want to be outside, you're sick and tired of being cooped up where it's warm, and if you go outside, you're going to die, and plowing snow, and it's like curse, 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 and never before have I looked forward to spring like I have this year. I mean, March is like coming and spring starts in March. And by April, maybe it's going to stop snowing. And it's like, yes, salvation is here. (laughs) (laughs) And I realized that winter death gives way to spring life. And it's not only in the way we feel about the seasons, because you might happen to like winter, okay, whatever. But you look at the trees. Trees know that winter is bringing death. They lose their fruit. They lose their leaves. They wither inside of themselves. The life of the tree hides inside. And when spring rolls around, that life comes out. The leaves become green. The fruits begin to grow. God has built into the seasons himself himself. That life is about this this cycle of death, and through the death, something happens in which life comes out of that death. And that's the gospel, that God has put his own plan in creation itself. And you guys know that Psalm 19 says that the heavens themselves declare the glory of God. That the grandeur of what's out there, and, and astronomers are still discovering the far reaches of the galaxy... Over, we, We're never reaching the end of it, and that's the glory, the grandeur, the majesty of our God. So God has chosen to make himself known through things that we experience. Now, God himself, uh, the invisible God, was made visible in Jesus. That's a human being. The invisible God is presently made visible in his church, in us. The way that we treat each other as a community is to communicate the nature of our God and the gospel that he is putting into this world. We are putting flesh to the unfleshed and invisible God. So whether it's through creation, through humanity, through Jesus, through, through the church, God is choosing things, everyday physical things we can touch and see, to manifest and teach us about himself. And marriage is right at the top of this chain. As Jesus gave us flesh to God, as the church shows us the character of God, marriage shows us the gospel in physical Action. You can see marriage, and in marriage, you can see what God is intending for all of creation. Hence, I say that marriage, the mission of marriage, is to be a model of the gospel to all of creation. It's at the center of God's crown. Man, in in the Genesis account, um, we talked about this a while ago, but man's the crown of that creation story. The most words are given to the creation of man. Poetry is given to the creation of man. God has a counsel with himself when man is created. He's the crowning achievement of everything that's made, and in the crowning achievement, he creates these two halves that come together, and so in the middle of his creation is man, and in the middle of man is his need to be married, and that at the core of all of his creation, flowing out from that is this message of what God wants to do to all of creation. This unification, this gospel, this this self-sacrificing love. And you see this in Ephesians. I think that when Paul gets to the marriage part here, it's culminating some themes we've been looking at. Uh, For example, in in marriage, what do you have? Um, We read here in 5.31 that Two shall become one flesh. The two become one. Ephesians has been talking about this. Ephesians 1.10 That through Christ we are participating in his program which is reunifying all things in heaven and earth in Jesus. Remember that in 1.10? All things heaven and earth, divorced because of the curse, they are being reunifying and touching together in Jesus. There is this marriage, this reunification that's happening in Christ. In 2 verse 15 we looked at the new humanity. That it's no longer Jew, it's no longer Gentile, but these two become one new thing. It becomes Christian, the new humanity. So there's this marriage happening in all nations in Christ. So as heaven and earth are two becoming one, Jew and Gentile are two becoming one. So the marriage is two becoming one, thus giving us flesh and something to look at about what the gospel is up to in the world. Hence the mission of marriage is modeling the gospel to all of creation and all of humanity. That's what it is supposed to be. And that's why church, this thing of marriage is for us to reclaim and to hold to with I don't know if severity is the right word, but you get my point. It's something that's not to be taken lightly. So, um, that's what marriage, the mission of marriage is modeling the gospel to all creation. I've always found it helpful at points like this, to then look at what something is by understanding what it is not. So, I want to talk about the four myths of marriage. Now, there's a lot. If you Google the myths of marriage, I mean, you know, there's a list of like 20, but I thought four would be most relevant to us tonight. Um, A lot of people are struggling in marriage, and marriages are being torn apart because rather than living the mission of their marriage, they're living in the myth of marriage. The myth of marriage says this. Number one, marriage will complete me. Myth number one, marriage will complete me. No, marriage will not complete you. And here's one of the problems that we see. We see unsatisfied and unhappy people running around thinking, if I find her or him, then I will be satisfied and then I'll be happy. But here's what usually happens. Unsatisfied and unhappy people usually draw to themselves unsatisfied and unhappy people. They're both hunger starved for another person, and they're like, this works really good. But it really doesn't. Some of you read in that pamphlet last Valentine's Day that sad plus sad does not equal happy. Unhappy and unhappy does not make you happy. It's just a logical, mathematical formula that doesn't work. So, marriage is not going to complete us, but what marriage will do is it will set you, when done properly, when living the mission of marriage, it will set you on a course towards satisfaction and happiness. Marriage itself won't complete you. But the lifestyle it calls you into, this self-sacrificing, giving up and dying for the other person lifestyle, is going to lead you into the resurrection life of God. As you die and the other partner dies for each other, which I'll talk about in a minute, as the death is beginning to happen, God brings his resurrection life in that marriage. And that is what completes you and satisfies you and makes you happy. So marriage is just one of many avenues that can lead us to satisfaction, happiness, when done properly. But it should never be seen as the ultimate means, as the ultimate end. It can be a means to there, but it will not itself complete you. So that's myth number one. Myth number two is that marriage will change my spouse. <laughs> and people go into marriage with this myth. Oh, you know, Jaden's really cool. A couple things i change about him. We'll work that out once we're married. And I think a lot of women have a tendency to go into marriage with this mentality that, Oh, he's just a broken man, but I'll get him once I have power in the household. Um, and then you get these marriages that are nagging, that are... Uh, here's, here's the thing. Okay. If you go into the marriage assuming that you will be able to change them, um, not only does that not work, but it's counterproductive when the other person has the same idea. <laughs> so then you're both coming at each other, and conformity isn't happening. Conflict is happening. Contention is happening. And there's arguments, and there's fighting, and there's la. Ah. And then suddenly one of them will stand up and say, okay, I give up. I'll live your way. And they try that, and it's really frustrating. So the woman's getting her way, the man's trying to live her way. Or, the woman says, I'll live your way. So she comes over here and tries to live the man's way. And there's this list constant, like, "Ah, oh, I'm trying to change for you, but I can't. It's because we need to understand what marriage is and the gospel is. It isn't that earth becomes heaven, or heaven becomes earth. It's that the two together become a new thing, a new world. It isn't that the Jew has to become a Gentile, or that the Gentile has to become a Jew. It's that the two in Christ become something new. And so in marriage, it isn't that the man has to live like the woman, or the woman has to live like the man, but it's that the two of them in Christ become us. There's a new identity in the marriage. So you can't go into it thinking, well, I'll change them or we'll, you know, we'll live my kind of ideas. No, the two are going to become not her, not him, but us. This new identity in Christ. So that's myth number two. Myth number three, marriage (laughs) is fueled by passionate romance. Now, there are moments of that. But that doesn't last. It ebbs and flows. You've got jobs. You've got life. Um, I will experience this maybe one day. But you've got kids. And lots of demands upon you. And romance just sometimes goes, you're out of emotion. You're out of feeling. You're just, you've had enough and like there's no more room for that. And the feelings of romance and passion ebb and flow. You can't count on that. You can't define our relationship is going good because I just feel so like butterflies around her. I believe I can fly. My head is in the clouds and all these ideas. And it doesn't last. Um, And unfortunately, culture, uh, aspects of culture, communicate to us that is this, this feeling and this romantic love that ignites a relationship and that keeps it burning. Every
0: single, chick flick.
1: every single chick flick. and they don't show you the realistic aspects of a relationship. And what if you're not a critical thinker, what ends up happening is you buy two lies from what things like chick flicks or what have you will teach you. Uh, CS Lewis talks about this in mere Christianity. He says that the two lies of culture, of romance and culture, what they tell you is, number one, romantic feelings are forever. Because that's what you see in the movie. That's how they get together. And it's all fireworks all the time, and the movie ends. You don't see the conflict that happens the next day. Or the big trial over losing a job for the next year. Or you don't see those things. And you just think, that's what, that's what I want. That's why I'm incomplete. That's what I'm missing. That's what I'm looking for. I just want this like firework experience all the time. And then what happens is you realize this doesn't last forever. And you begin to think that because romantic feelings defined love at the beginning, that's what defines love hereafter. And when those feelings fade, you think, I'm out of love. I fell in love. I think I fell out of love. There's no lifesaver. And, and it, you justify that I can, I'm free to start over. Fold this up because I'm out of love. I, you know, it apparently ended. Fate saw that we're done, so we're done. And then the second lie, C.S. Lewis says, is that romance is irresistible. Therefore, let's say you're in that spot where you're kind of like you and your wife and your husband, just that things, just, the fire's gone. But now all of a sudden, you feel it for somebody at work or at church. Something's happening between you and them. And you believe, oh, fate has shifted my love to another person. I must follow. And you think that, like, love is something that you just kind of fall into. I'm kind of just falling into it, but I just go with it. That's, that... That's the myth, is that that's what defines love, is these feelings for people. And Yeah, that's the initiation. I mean, I don't think a guy would ever in his right mind go for a girl, or maybe it's the other way around. A girl would ever in her right mind go for a guy, unless there was this like initial attraction thing going on. Like, oh, I just feel so special.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> there comes a time when a love is not just something you fall into, but it's something that you intentionally set up. And that's what it is in marriage, is that, we have this idea that love is something that happens. No. In marriage, love is not something you accidentally fall into like a pothole. It's something that you make like a bridge over that pothole. It's intentional. And if, we'll talk about a little bit more what love looks like in a minute. So the myths of marriage, number four. So number one was, myth: will, the, uh, marriage will complete me. Uh, marriage will change my spouse. Uh, marriage is fueled by this hot, passionate romance. <laughs> I added hot that time, didn't I? (laughs) And then the fourth myth is that marriage is bondage. That's a myth. Marriage is bondage. Um, I I think you've seen maybe that T-shirt. At least I have. might be old by now. But it's like, um, oh, yeah. It's got, like, the little stick figures. You guys remember those shirts? The stick figure like, a comic book, and it has a little message. And it had this guy, like, a bachelor. Then he gets married, and then, like, at the bottom, says, game over. And he's all happy, then he's married, and he's sad. Game over. <laughs> um, that's, you know, that's the idea right there, that marriage is bondage. And we sometimes joke about that. I've heard people... Um, say to me lightheartedly, I don't think he really meant it, but like, oh yeah, you gotta go check with Brittany. Like, she's some ball and chain keeping me from going to In-N-Out or something. Um, (laughs) 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 No, marriage, marriage is not bondage, but people go into it with the myth that, oh yeah, marriage is bondage. So, what I think a lot of our generation is discovering is Let's just cohabit, Tate, whatever it is. <laughs> cohabitation. Let's just live together and figure this out. But cohabitation is actually more of a bondage than marriage is. And here's why. Cohabitation is chaining you to the fear of commitment. That's why people... Live together rather than get married is because you want to be with somebody, but you don't actually want the commitment. And so you are now chained by your fear of commitment to only part time live with people. Now, some people are like, Well, that's that's not what I'm looking at, Brandon. I mean, I, I intend to marry this person someday. We're just gonna move in a little bit early and try things out. Why? Because deep down inside, you're not sure if it's going to work. And you want a way out in case it doesn't work out. So you're thinking, let's try this for a few months, and then I can just go out the door. So you're, you're, you're entering into this relationship with your eye on the exit. You know what that's like? Um, oh, what's her name? Um, um, somebody, Elliot... No, it's not, Elizabeth. Oh well. She said this that the hallmark of commitment is the intention of a future. The hallmark of commitment is the intention of a future. What that means is the point of commitment is that you're looking down the road and saying, We will be together. Now well I got distracted by you people walking away. What was I saying? <laughs> commitment is that it?
0: <laughs>
1: oh yeah yeah you're going into it and you're thinking oh yeah i'll have a way out well the hallmark of commitment is the assumption of a future so commitment is like this foundation for a relationship and if you're beginning the relationship you're you're building the house without the foundation of a commitment it's like baking a cake without the main ingredient knowing full well you don't have it it's ridiculous you get all your supplies together, and you're like, I don't have flour, but I don't think I need it. Now, JC might try that, but um, commitment's a crucial ingredient. And when we co- do cohabitation, you're entering in without the main ingredient. And yeah, okay, you might have something, but it's not going to be a true cake. but (laughs) hope but cohabitation also has another problem and let's say you're doing the style where you know what forget marriage it's bondage I want to be free I want to be free to be with who I want to be when I want to be with them so you do the thing that a lot of people are doing you live Um, instead of having a roommate, that's a guy or girl of your same gender, you're going for the opposite gender and you have like the friends with benefits thing and you're living together and you're having all the marital benefits, but there's no connection at all. And you're like, let's do this for two years. And then like, okay, we're not working. Conflict has happened. We don't even want to fight through it because you never fight through something that you're not committed to. And so then you just, you find a new person. And then a few years later, you find a new person. And it's very real in the world. And that is actually more of a bondage than marriage. You think like, oh yeah, I'm free, I get to do what I want, and I can cut the ties when I want, and then I can be free to go with them. And You want this autonomous kingship for yourself, but you're actually enslaving yourself because that style of living is putting exile on repeat. What I mean by that is, you're experiencing what God has put in human heart for this connection, this unification, and you're getting it, and then you're severing it, just like heaven and earth were severed. Man and God were severed because of Adam's desire to be in control. And so you do that once, and then you get back together. exiles repeated and you're actually confounding the misery of the human heart because you're experiencing exile over and over and over and you're never finding belonging or identity which is what every human being is yearning for is that place to call home that place to say that is what I am and the gospel's offering it but there's a world of
0: <laughs>
1: that's a not a good message that not... <laughs> Where was I? <laughs> okay. Well, I don't know how to backtrack from that. Um, <laughs> okay, so those are your four myths of marriage, and um, biblically, those are myths. It, it wants to say something that, that yeah, that might be what people are thinking about marriage, but there's something bigger than that. There's a mission that these myths aren't seeing. And the mission, once again, is that the mission of marriage is to be a model of the gospel to all of creation. I need mean, keep my my fist closed when I throw my hand out. Um, probably better in my pocket. But it's a model of the gospel to all of creation. Now, for the church, marriage accomplishes this mission, becoming this model of the gospel to all of creation. It accomplishes this mission two ways. The first is that the mission of marriage models the gospel by creating family. A family of children where they can develop a gospel identity. So we are accomplishing the mission in marriage of modeling the gospel to creation. Because in marriage a family is being formed in which people are finding a gospel identity number one number two the mission of marriage becoming the model of the gospel to all creation is accomplished by reenacting the self-sacrificing love of god so you're modeling the gospel because you are reenacting what the gospel is the self-sacrificing love of god so that's where i'm gonna go um for this last segment we're going to look at those two things in peace how do we model marriage to the world what is this mission how do we accomplish it those two ways so number 1 we model the gospel through marriage by creating families that conform gospel identity now that might not that might sound a little abstract right now but i think this will become clear in a second look with me at 531 it says there... And notice it's in quotes... Or depending on how your Bible formats it... But mine has it in quotes... It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, it's in quotes because he's quoting from the Old Testament. Genesis two twenty-four. Now, I wonder if Paul doesn't have in mind in this quotation... The larger story of creation. Because what he's quoting is the final segment of the creation narrative. The very end. Um, God creates the heavens and the earth, and it talks about the Garden of Eden, it talks about man, uh, Adam naming the animals, then it talks about he going to sleep, Eve being made, and then they come together, the two shall become one flesh, boom! Chapter 3 happens, and the serpent comes, and everything gets ruined. He's quoting he's the conclusion of the creation story. And I wonder if he doesn't have that big picture in mind. What big picture am I thinking of? Maybe Genesis one twenty eight is playing into this. Genesis one twenty eight is the one that tells man why he's alive. What he was supposed to do there with creation in that garden. And it says this. That um, God blessed man and he said to him be fruitful multiply fill the earth he put it in three ways so you don't miss the point that means expand right it means grow fruitful multiply fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over these areas of creation so god is sending man out he's saying this earth is yours to rule as i rule You're ruling underneath me and you're going to go out and you're going to multiply so that as you multiply, you cover the earth. And as you cover the earth, you're controlling and cultivating creation. You're harvesting, you're, you're creating, you're making, you're forming into things. You're the master of this planet. I mean, that was obviously the ideal until Adam fell. And maybe Paul is thinking about that aspect. The whole be fruitful, be multiply, fill the earth. Because this is the mission. And Jesus picks up this idea of filling the earth. When he talks to his disciples right before he sends them to heaven, he says, You guys are going to go and make disciples of all the nations. You're to go be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth with little images of me. You're to bring my message. You're to enact who I am to every nation. So go out and do that. Now where does all this begin? It begins when a husband and a wife live the gospel between each other and create this environment, this gospel-centered home in which children are born and raised with an understanding of who they are and why they're here. It's called a gospel identity. And then they go off and start their families knowing why they're here and what they're supposed to do. And they go start their jobs with this gospel identity. And they raise kids and have a marriage with gospel identity. And it's multiplying the gospel organically through family. You're not even quoting a passage of scripture and you're getting this done. Because they're seeing the model of the gospel mom and dad. And they're understanding everything about who God is through the first authority figures they know. And they're believing about that God, what they see in them. And they're going and living that in the world. So, marriage is a model of the gospel, first, because it forms a family in which gospel identity is made. Now, I think that this is why God dislikes divorce intensely. It's because while marriage is the promotion of the gospel, divorce is the destruction of the gospel. The marriage is the unifying of two individuals becoming one and forming the safe haven for children to grow up and understand who they are and understand the father and why they're here and what they're supposed to do. But divorce takes this this, this, this heaven on earth and rips it apart from them. And it's death. It's exile. It's what, it's what Adam did to this creation. It's what Israel did when they rebelled against God. It's this exile, this separation. And divorce just rips it. Marriage is bringing life, but divorce is bringing death. And it kills the people involved. Man and women are just torn. And the children, worst of all. Their identity is suffering They don't even know if they're loved. They don't really understand what marriage is about. A lot of girls have this bizarre, authoritative, punch you in the face, like violent image of men. And some of you have been involved in divorces, and you know what I'm saying is, or maybe you don't because it's all you know, but it's not the way you were meant to be brought up. So the mission of marriage models the gospel by creating a family with gospel identity. And then, second, the mission of marriage models the gospel by reenacting God's self-sacrificing love, and this is the key. I think this is the most important, and this is probably the most like immediately applicable to you guys, as you're on the eve. I know it might be years away, but you're on the evish of marriage. It's not that far down the line. This comes from the main part of the passage, verse. 22 basically almost this whole thing is the whole idea but what paul does is he defines roles he says okay in this mission of marriage you're going to accomplish it yeah together but there's specific roles for the man and woman the woman's role is going to be reenact the gospel through self-sacrificing surrender And the man is going to model the gospel through self-sacrificing servanthood. So the woman seeks the self-sacrificing surrender and the man the self-sacrificing servanthood. All of it's coming down to each other. So for the wife, let's read verse 22 through 24 to refresh what he says. The self-sacrificing surrender. Wives submit, that's an abused word, Submit to, I would say, self-sacrificially surrender to your own husbands as to the Lord, key. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit, self-sacrificially surrender in everything to their husbands. So, as you, Christian... Follow Jesus by laying down your autonomous kingship and obeying Christ's kingship, the wife is doing the same. She's no longer her own. She belongs to her husband, as a Christian belongs to Christ. So it's not being submission, you know, you're not submitting yourself to abuse. That would be unbiblical. You're not submitting yourself to anything that dehumanizes you. You're submitting yourself. In a self-sacrificial surrender to your husband, and now the condition on the husband's coming up in a second. But before I get there, I think Jesus models this perfectly, woman, the way that you are to be in the relationship. And J.C. pointed this out in his uh, the, relation, the love-shaped identity message. He said that Jesus sacrificed and surrendered to the will of the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's a model of how the woman is to live. Not self-seeking and trying to be rebellious and her own king, but like Jesus saying, look, I know this is going to hurt, but I will lay down and self-sacrifice and surrender to accomplish his purposes. And that's the woman's job in the marriage. Now, the man, he has a lot more to say to And that is um, that he's to reenact the gospel. So the wives are reenacting the gospel in the way that Jesus lays down his life to the Father's will. And in the way that the Christian is laying down his life to Jesus' will. Now the husband is reenacting the gospel by self-sacrificially serving the woman. As Jesus did the same for us. So verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, da, da, da. and it goes on and expands on that idea. But see, there's the model, and Paul has a lot to say to the man because I think that a lot of this hinges upon the man. There's a lot of blame about what girls are doing and women and wives and, but I think it's time for the church to look at men and say, man up. Learn to die and serve. There you go. Stephen's got the man up shirt. Falenki'd live it. I'm just kidding. Everyone's
0: like, uh... <laughs>
1: now, here's what's striking about what Paul's asking. Is that in the Roman Empire, the man of the household... Was a miniature version of Caesar himself. Caesar ruled the world. He did as he willed with power and military might. The family unit was seen as a microcosm of Rome. And the man was the Caesar of the household. So he could do as he pleased and nobody could resist him. And he was seen as this powerful, authoritative figure. But Paul is calling the church not, he's calling the men not to imitate Caesar, but to imitate Jesus. And Jesus is a different sort of king who didn't rule through the love of power, but through the power of love. And he ruled by giving his life up for the church to meet the church's needs. And that's the husband. He's to serve and to sacrifice himself for the wife's needs. You might remember James and John, the two brothers and disciples of Jesus, and they were walking towards Jerusalem He's about to die, and they're arguing about who is going to sit at his right and left hand in his kingdom. And they come to Jesus and say, hey, we want prestige, we want power, we want to be your men. And then the other disciples are all angry. Oh, why didn't we think of that? They're swindling us. They're they're sneaking underneath us and robbing what we all want. And and Jesus calls them to himself and says, you guys, you guys. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What did Jesus just do there? He said, you guys are thinking like the Romans. You're thinking like Caesar. Caesar. You guys want to be flexing muscles and saying, "Yeah, man." And Jesus is saying, "In my kingdom, it is more heroic to die. To be the slave and the servant of all." Now, more practically, men, truly it is a heroic thing to die for somebody else. And I looking at your guys' character, I don't think any of us would hesitate to die for somebody. When the moment came, you would just step right in, I'm sure. It's heroic. That's right. But even more heroic is a man who dies for his wife on a daily basis. In comparison, dying for somebody once and being done is easy. But dying for somebody every day is a special calling. And that is what Jesus... and his kingdom are all about that's what Jesus did for us that's what he's calling us into so he's calling us in marriage to model the gospel by reenacting the selfless love of God so the women are self-sacrificially surrendering the men are self-sacrificially serving and they're both dying for each other They're both giving up of self. They're both reenacting God's love. So, men, in closing, we should have the kind of headship, the kind of love, the kind of self-sacrificing servanthood that makes the wife's submission irresistible. It should be of such a love and leadership, like Jesus himself, that the wife doesn't even have to be told to submit, to surrender. She wants nothing else because there's nothing better than the way you meet her needs as a servant. There's no one who will die for her like you. So marriage flourishes with life when we commit to die. When both parties make the commitment of death, marriage flourishes with life. And that is it not the message of Ephesians. is that our identity is a people who have died with Christ and are living not just a normal life, but a resurrection life. Because we have God's life himself. And God's life is imparted to those who die. So marriage flourishes with life when we commit to die. And you might be thinking, I'm not going to be married. That's down the road. I'm going to be the single guy. That's fine. You don't have to be married. But the practical implication for us today, right now, is that whether you're married or not, going to be or not going to be, these are the principles for all relationships. Marriage is just the toughest because you can't get out. (laughs) And when we begin to live this way with each other now, marriage will just be another step. And the gospel will presently be modeled to all of creation. Because we are reenacting the self-sacrificial love of God to each other. Let us find our identity there. Father, we pray for your help. We pray for your love to flow through us and to conquer our desires for power, for prestige. That we would be overwhelmed by your self-sacrificing, surrendering, servanthood, love. And may we be those who reenact what you have done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.